Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. and i think we are up we're live connor thanks for being here uh it's a pleasure to talk to you how you doing tonight thanks for having me yes sir so i guess to get everyone kind of familiarized with yourself and just to get the conversation going i know that you're an author you're a public speaker um you started an institute um you know you have tv show producer you have your own podcast i mean what was the motivation where did it all come from and how do we get from yeah a to point b maybe that's where we should where we should start at well sure so thanks for having me my name is connor and i am a full-time freedom fighter uh what that means for me is i'm uh, constantly trying to change hearts minds and laws to create a freer world i run a nonprofit think tank the libertas institute uh so we change a lot of laws or we partner with elected officials and give them ideas and strategies on laws to change that remove a lot of kind of onerous regulations and things that stand in people's way to be able to have, you know, their pursue their American dream. So that's kind of my day job. And uh, along the way, I started writing books, uh, trying to educate people about these ideas and principles of, you know, free markets and property rights and entrepreneurship and things like that, Um, including a series of children's books called The Tuttle Twins. Uh, these are kids' books that teach about these ideas, you know, what money is, what's inflation, uh, what's personal responsibility, and why is it important? Uh, how do we learn? Um, how do we learn new things? Why do we learn? What are good ways to learn? Um, you know, how do markets work? How can we make uh, smart choices and all these things through fun stories that kids really oddly enjoy reading? Uh, we stumbled onto a little bit of a formula that 
has produced a lot of, uh, you know, these kids really love reading these books. We sold four and a half million copies now, I think. Uh, we're in a dozen languages. We got a cartoon. So just, you know, that effort is all blown up. But all of it for me is under this umbrella of I passionately believe that people should be free to, you know, live their lives and pursue their dreams and not impeded by all these, you know, arcane regulations and laws that were designed decades ago. And so I try and remove those barriers. I try and remove barriers of ignorance where people don't know how to take advantage of these opportunities in life and how to build businesses and successful careers and lives. And so for me, it's all about just removing barriers to allow people to go down the path they want. And uh, that's me in a nutshell. Nice. And that was a lot to take in, but good. But so have you always been this way? I mean, you know, wanting to, I mean, I guess growing up, maybe I, this is what I want to ask. What, like growing up, which is, well, there's always like, hey, there's different ways of doing things. You know, I don't really like the way, you know, we're going around this route. Maybe I could do something to change something for the better. Is that kind of where your thinking started at? Or did you get it from your parents? Or was it, you know, nature versus nurture? What was it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I certainly grew up in a household that uh, my parents taught me by example, about the importance of getting involved. If you see something you don't like, then be part of the solution. My my mom's email signature for years, I mean, decades, I actually, yeah, decades, has always included that quote that Gandhi never actually said, but everyone attributes it to him, be the change you wish to see in the world. And uh, and he didn't actually say it, but you know, we basically have assigned that quote to him as if he actually said it. Yeah. But that was my example growing up. I I was in a household where you don't just sit there and complain. You don't shake your fist and say someone ought to do something and then go about your life. You you see trash, you know, in the campground, you pick it up. You you know, leave it cleaner than you found it. And my dad was our scoutmaster forever in Boy Scouts, and you know, so that those types of principles were. Uh, set there too about always trying to pay it forward and you know do service and do good to others so I, I was kind of raised with that background but I didn't know what that meant for me it wasn't top of mind it was just kind of in the background uh, of that exposure that that nurture and maybe some nature and later in life you know I was a web developer I was a graphic designer I I was just kind of doing that full time, but I really didn't like spending all of my energy building websites and things for companies I didn't care about. Like my heart, my passion was not there. I loved the technical challenge. I loved the people I worked with. But at the end of the day, like a lot of these clients I had, there was no heart there. It was just a job. It was just a paycheck. Like, okay, you're paying me to build your random website. I don't care about it, but here we go. And, uh, and I, I, I had a hard time with that because I have, you know, my time is my scarcest resource. Um, and, and I didn't want to be allocating it towards things that, that didn't tie to my passion, but it took me a little while to figure out how do I align my skills with my passion? You know, how can I apply those creative talents and energies to an area where I can actually make an impact and, uh, where it aligns with my passion. And so after a few years of kind of bouncing around a few organizations, I said, I'm going to start my own. And uh, and I did. And I had no clue what I was doing, but I knew that I could custom design it exactly around, you know, that unique skill set and then build a team around me to support what I was doing. Um, and I haven't looked back since. It's been 11 years and it was totally the right decision for me. And it's been gratifying in every way possible. I wake up every day to people who express gratitude to me to, you know, for everything that I've done for their family and who wouldn't want a life like that. Um, so it's, it's just been really good. I'm so honored to be in a position of being able to help people, teach people, teach their kids, 
with these Tuttle Twins books, and it's uh, it's just a very rewarding career. Mm, I like that. I like that, Connor. But you know, so going back though, you know, those kind of morals and values and those teachings that your parents enlisted on you at a young age. I mean, do you think that's maybe an issue with the modern world and education today? I mean, I know you said you wrote the Tuttle Twins books, and you have I think what you thirty others or thirty six other books, and that there's certain yeah. not being enriched or ingrained on students and the education system in the modern world? Uh, that is a big and important question. Uh, so let me answer it with a story. Okay. Uh, recently, there was a group called the National Commission on Excellence in Education. They group of like, you know, stakeholders and interested people in education. And they got together and they spent 18 months going across the country here in America and they were trying to answer this question, like, how? what is the status of schools today? How are we doing in educating the youth? National Commission on Excellence in Education. And, and after 18 months of all these, like, public meetings and site visits and research and everything else, they produced a report called A Nation at Risk. And in the report, among other things, they said this quote. They said that the foundations of America are being threatened by a rising tide of mediocrity mm. and and that if a foreign power had attempted to impose on America the very mediocre educational performance and standards that now exists, we might have viewed it as an act of war. But as it stands, we've allowed it to happen to ourselves. Wow. So, so powerful, but I misled you because – this group wasn't actually recent. They didn't recently do this study or issue this report. That was in 1983. Wow. So 40 years ago, this group got together under the Reagan administration to survey at the time the education landscape. And back then, I was born in 81. So in 83, they got together and they reviewed things and they said that there was a rising tide of mediocrity threatening America's very foundations. So the question I ask when I share this with audiences or I'll, I'll ask you, let's just get your opinion, Chris. Do you think in the past 40 years, the educational outcomes in America have improved or declined since 40 years ago? I think for sure they've declined. And that's just based on my experiences and what other experiences have went to. Then also now that in the past 40 years that there's other situations that I've been reading about where schools are actually lowering down the grade scale system. So like a, a C is literally like a 60 now, rather than where, when I was going to school, it was like a 70 or something like that. Right. So, yeah. and, and then, and on to your point, and I was listening and I don't know how you feel about Dr. Phil, but he was talking on a podcast about how if you rank America in, everyone likes to think we're at the top of every like subject wise, like school or not school, uh, math, science, and, I guess it was reading, but we're like 18th, 19th, and 30th in those three subjects right there. So yeah, to your but yeah, to your question, yeah, you're we're definitely declined in those last 40 years. And and I agree. I mean, I think in some aspects there's maybe some improvement uh, in various small little categories here and there. Uh, but overall, I think things have have declined. In fact, I'm working on a book right now uh called Mediocrity: 40 Ways That Government Schools Are Failing Our Kids. So it'll be published on the day, 40 years after that report was issued. Nice. And in every chapter, we're tackling a different way that the government schools are totally failing kids. So so that's the answer to your question is I think 
schools. And I know many amazing teachers. I know people who, you know, sign up because they just want to help kids and they pour their heart and soul into it. And they're not paid as much as they should be because the administrative bloat on top is just crazy and all the pensions and everything else. And so despite the good intentions of the good teachers who are in the system, I think the system itself is so poorly designed. I think it's chewing up and spitting out these kids after getting them to, to memorize all this crap that doesn't mean anything to them. And so they pump and dump it, right? They pump their heads before the test and then they dump it all because it has no personal relevance. They don't, I, I was the kid that would raise my hand. Why do we need to learn this? You know, what's, you know, put your hand down. It'll be on the test. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, and, and when that's the message over and over and over again, I'll tell you this. I cheated. I suddenly became to realize, you know, that my parents wanted me to get A's and the system said I had to get A's and I was lazy, you know, and I didn't want to have to study all this crap that I didn't care about. And so I started cheating. I optimized for the result. The result was not learning. It was not character development. It was not curiosity. Right. It was performance on a test. Of course. And so I optimized for that and I, you know, excelled in many ways. Did I learn much? No, you know, but uh, so to me, yes, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems for our country is what they recognized 40 years ago, this rising tide of mediocrity that I think that tide has gone up, meaning that more of us are, are submerged underneath that tide of mediocrity now. And uh, I don't see it getting better anytime soon unless more families keep pulling their kids out of the system homeschooling, private school, micro school, pandemic pods, you know, learning pods, whatever you want to call them. There's a, a burgeoning movement of education alternatives. And I think if that movement can continue to grow and thrive uh, and create some competition for the government schools, because they've enjoyed a monopoly for a long time, um, I, I think that is a silver lining in a big dark cloud. And so I'm hopeful that uh, post COVID as so many families are like, Oh, there's all these problems. And where are some solutions? I'm, I'm a little hopeful that we're going to see, uh, some improvements, but overall, I think we got a lot of work to do because the system is just so, so flawed. Is that just because, you know, in, I, while you were talking, I was thinking about how actually high school and elementary was for me. And it was basically the exact same thing. It was all just performance based. Like nobody really cared if you knew the material or not. It was just, man, there was, exceptions there's anomalies to everything of course but there was just like hey you know you got you got your a we're good to go and it was sols that we always had to take but you know you everybody had to pass the sols i think that's what it calls and, I, and i'm in virginia so i don't know what it's like in are you in utah i am yeah and i don't know exactly what the education system is like right there but you just think it's a um for government schools like you said like it's just a money thing like who cares that these kids actually know anything it's just about performance scores and that if we if the whole high school passes, all their SOLs may or may not get more grant money, so to speak. So who cares how they learn it as long as they get a good passing score? I love this question. Um, and the reason why I love it is because so few people ask it. I, I, I This example came in my head the other day when I was working on this mediocrity book. I'm like, imagine if you're in a submarine and you're new to that submarine. You're not really familiar with its internal mechanics, which are many they're all interweaving you know pipes and valves and things like that and you see some steam coming out of one of these pipes and it sounds and looks really scary and you're worried because like we're way underwater and is that a good or a bad thing and there's you know puddles everywhere and and this valve over here is making a bunch of squeaky noise you know are you going to sink and die if we don't know the system design if we don't know the schematics you know that's a big problem we can't take appropriate action we can't uh have internal peace and comfort if we don't understand the, 
the design of the system. Yeah. I think the biggest problem today is that the government schools, where you ask this question about like, why are these things happening in the, in the schools? What are the incentives? What are the problems? It's that so few people understand the schematics of government schools. If we want to understand why government schools are operating the way that they are today, we have to understand that we have to look at the blueprints. Why were they set up this way? Who set them up? What was their purpose? Why did they structure things the way that they did? And when you go look at who those architects were and what their blueprints were, these were collectivists. They were utopian socialists. They were people who wanted to homogenize diverse people like Horace Mann. Horace Mann saw back in the 1800s, he was the founder of the common school movement. He saw in Prussia this very authoritarian, militaristic, top-down education uh, uh, program where they were regimenting these kids into being obedient rule followers. Coupled with the rise of the industrial era, what did people prize at the time? They wanted people who could sit at a conveyor belt and put widget A over here and then do this thing to widget B, rinse and repeat over and over again. And so they built a school modeled after the Prussian system that prized this very authoritarian regimented approach that was structured for the economy at the time. They literally cut like public school. We call them public schools today. Some people call them neighborhood schools at the time for decades, they were called factory schools because they were literally designed to prepare kids for work in the factory. Those are the same schools we have today. They have not materially changed in over a century. And so today's schools are designed for an economy that no longer exists. They do not teach ki- uh, kids you know, how to think. They teach them what to think. It's all about batch processing. And you must learn the same thing in the same way at the same time as every other kid, because you're all on a conveyor belt and we're all going to homogenize you into the same predictable output so that you can graduate and look the same as everyone else. That is not what today's economy needs. That's not what good parents want for their kids. But that's the school system that we have. And it's because that's the way it was built many, many, many decades ago. Wow, Connor. So depressing, right? Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I was one of those kids that was always taught growing up that, you know, there's more education you have, the more successful you'll be in life, right? And so it was kind of structured for me that go to high school. Okay, did that. Okay, go get your bachelor's degree. Okay, did that. Go get your master's degree. Cool. You'll be making X amount of money based on your industry and the statistics out there, whatever. Right. But that's not the case for everybody. And so, but along the way, though, I've actually learned more by doing things rather than just what I learned from what was being taught to me in front of a PowerPoint or a book, so to speak. So, and I guess my question is that, you know, Thomas Swole. Is it soul? Soul? Soul, yeah. Oh, yeah. No solutions. There's only trade-offs. So with the point of actually public school systems and neighborhood schools and and going towards like what you were talking about, going back to homeschooling and would you say government pod or pods or pod schooling or something like that? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that if you had a magic wand and you could say like, this is how we're going to fix this educational system now, since it's been the same way for X amount of years, let's go ahead and start a new direction, a new trend. I mean, is this is... Is it you changing the whole curriculum of what's being taught in schools or? So this, yeah, great question. Um, Are you familiar by chance with John Taylor Gatto? You ever heard that name? I think so. So uh, he was a public school teacher for 30 years and he was an award-winning teacher. He was in his later years awarded New York City Teacher of the Year, 
the year after that, he won uh, New York State Teacher of the Year. He was a very innovative teacher trying to like help really, really help kids do creative things in the classroom to actually help them. But in the very year, this was in the 80s, when he was awarded New York State Teacher of the Year, uh, he quit. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. The title was, I Quit, I Think. And he goes on in the op-ed to say, look, I'm trying to help kids, but I'm operating in a system that hurts them. Mm. And I'm not helping them more than I'm hurting them. So if anyone knows of a job where I can help kids without hurting them, please let me know. He quits and he goes on to write some books and goes on a public speaking profession. I mentioned his story, John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O, because he wrote a great book called Dumbing Us Down. Okay. Uh, the subtitle is uh, Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education. Dumbing Us Down, John Taylor Gatto. And that book is what I read when I was newly engaged and I had struggled through school. And I'm reading this book. I'm like, this is exactly what was going wrong for me. This is this is why the structure, even things like he talks about class periods, the fact that it's like, you know, 50 minutes or 55 minutes and then a bell rings and you move on. Just that mere fact alone creates harm to kids because you're minimizing deep learning. You're preventing them from gaining any depth. You keep them at a superficial level across a variety of subjects. They don't have time to go deep. And you might say, well, they can do that at home or they can do that on the weekend or during summer. But when you sap their mental energy by bombarding them with all these things that they have to memorize and learn and regurgitate, the last thing they want to do, the last thing I wanted to do when I got home was learn more sure. or you know, do more work. You want to just play with friends and unplug because you, you're, you're, you know, depleted your mental reserves. And so that, I mean, and no one thinks of that. No one thinks that class periods are a harmful structure for schooling. And yet the way he talks about it in the book from his experience, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can totally see that because I love going down rabbit holes now. I'll go spend four hours watching YouTube videos on some obscure historical thing that catches my fancy, right? You're not in your head. You agree. I agree 100%. And, and that's how our brains are all wired. And yet the schooling system, you know, deprives us of that. So the first answer to your question is John Taylor Gatto, dumbing us down. If you're asking me as you did, like, how would you structure things differently? Or what would you, I'd say, let's go learn from, from that book about some of the systemic problems that need to be solved for. The second one I'll mention is my own. It's not a Tuttle Twins book. I wrote a book called um, Passion Driven Education. John Taylor Gatto actually wrote the foreword for it before he passed away a few years ago, and um, which I was very honored by and in that book, I lay out a plan for like, you know, and it's, it's born of my own bias and experience. Here's where I struggled. Here's where I think a ton of kids are struggling. How would we build a better system? And it's a system that has to be designed around individual interests. The biggest problem, I think, with a school system is it disregards the curiosity and the interests uh, of, of each individual child. It does not honor the individuality of children. It instead says, you need to conform to us. You need to conform to what this curriculum committee has foreordained you to go through. And so I think we need to build a system that honors the individuality of children that says, hey, you know, Johnny, you're interested in Pokemon. Awesome. Let's have you do some creative writing exercises all about Pokemon. Let's have you go learn programming and learn about code that, you know, come up with a simple little Pokemon game, right? Let's have you learn about, will you do a report for the class tomorrow on, I don't remember the name of the company, but the, the company, or I guess Nintendo, I don't know, yeah. whoever owns Pokemon, right? Why don't you go look into them and tell us how their business works? 
Now they're learning about business just centered around. So when I was writing this book at the time, my son was really um, latched onto Angry Birds. You know, that little game where you fling the birds at the pigs. And he was he was obsessed about Angry Birds. And so what we did in his homeschool and this doesn't have to only be homeschool. You can do this within a classroom or at home with your kids if they're in public school. As I said, all right, I want to teach you algebra. He was like six or something at the time. And if I were to talk about X and Y and Z, these are abstract ideas. He's not going to get it. But all I did was change the variables, X and Y, for acronyms of his favorite angry birds. So one was, I think, just red bird. So I'm like, okay, RB for red bird. What's 2RB times 2? And I would show him how multiplication works and you know all these different things. And he was super interested, not because he wanted to learn algebra, but it because I had the slightest connection to Angry Birds. I showed him spreadsheets. We built this whole chart of like, okay, let's let's show a create a graph for like how many different Angry Birds are yellow or red or orange. And just the fact that I was doing that about Angry Birds, like hooked him his interest to spreadsheets and graphs and charts. The final example I'll share. Uh, there was Angry Birds had all these different variations of, of games. And one was called, I think, Angry Birds Space, I, I believe. And in this one, you were out in outer space and these little asteroids had gravitational fields that were visually depicted such that if you flung your your bird into one of these fields, it would then get sucked in by gravity and start to crash on the planet where these pigs were and you had to try and knock them off. So, So I'm explaining to my kid gravity you know, space, astronomy, um, force, mass, acceleration, all these physics principles that helped him better understand a game that he was already interested in. So if I were to build a system, it would have to honor the the individual interests, preferences, passions of kids and and allow them the creativity, the flexibility to, to learn about things based around what interests them because then they retain the knowledge, they apply the knowledge, they're super interested in just acquiring more knowledge about whatever they're curious about. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my kids. I've now seen it in thousands of kids as I've taught this model across the country that when we honor the individuality of the child, education is no longer drudgery. It's not homework. It's not boring. It is innately interesting because we're giving kids the freedom and flexibility to go learn about what they're already curious about. Connor, yeah, you're speaking my language. And what I was thinking about was that, you know, if you were to say that back when, you know, I think you said you were born in 81, I'm an 86 guy. And that okay. we were one of these guys, like relating to the material makes so much sense to me because I was one of those kids that, you know, you could be up there just talking about, you know, like algebra, whatever we were doing. And like, I didn't care about it. But if you actually made it relate to something that was, passionate for me at the time i would go about it all day it's like you said going down a rabbit hole on youtube videos learning about history or something what i mean when i find something i truly enjoy i'll sit all day for hours and do the same thing research everything google youtube whatever reach out to people and it's fun for me and i feel like it's not it's not learning it's learning but you really feel like you're not learning you're just enjoying the the process the habit whatever you want yeah. to but i guess that but if you were to say that Hey, I like video games, right? Or back in the day, like, like, like oh, it's gonna get you nowhere, right? Don't you know, right. <laughs> wasting your time, right? And that, 
But now there's so many different ways that you can go explore video games. Like you just talked about coding. And then, you know, I'm not saying you should go out and be a Twitch streamer or whatever and try to make a million dollars, but just coding or running a business based off video games and like what that details. And plus, you know, there's a lot of research coming out more about how actually video games kind of help the cognitive process. And but so I'm not saying you should go play video games for eight hours a day every day. But I mean, there's a lot of benefits to that. But I guess my whole point is that, you know, letting these kids or children or whatever you want to say explore what they're actually into rather than just saying like shutting it down in the first place is demeaning to them. You know, I heard yep. an, speaking of a podcast I was listening to was that Aaron Rodgers was talking about how he wanted to play in the NFL one day and his teachers were like, no, you're never going to do that. So go ahead and just sit there and basically do nothing. It's like, well, and I'm not, you know, I try to be a teacher, you know, I, I try to make, I majored in PE, but I'm just, and I'm not calling out teachers. I'm just generally speaking though. I mean, the way we're talking to kids and the way we're doing things like that, saying those little things like that, it's very hurtful and very like almost leading them down a path that you don't want them to go into where if you would just say, yeah, okay, let's do that. Like, you know, don't rain on the parade. Like let's do everything we can to help them out. Right. Just make sure what you're saying and just change it. And, and I don't know, can you do that for every kid though? Like, it, I guess that's my question is that, Hey, every specific module we're going to go after you and let you explore whatever you want to. Does that kind of make sense? Like, Hey, you like Pokemon, but you like, no, that makes perfect sense. And, and that, that is ultimately the problem that needs to be solved here because you can understand from a utilitarian perspective, why things have shaped up the way they have. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. If you are obligated as a centralized system to educate tens of millions of kids, right, you've got to create operational efficiencies. And so if you were to honor the individuality of each child, you'd get nowhere. You got a class of 30, 40 kids, right? And, you know, dozens of classes in a school with thousands of schools. And so how do you do that in a centralized model? And that I think that question has the answer. The problem is that it's a centralized model. Right. I think the solution is a decentralized model. So the teachers unions, you know, for decades and decades have been propping up the status quo of this early industrial factory school system because they profited off of it and they enriched themselves at the expense of, you know, the kids that they're here to serve. And, and so they're propping up this centralized system. I think the answer is decentralization. What that means is that the money that taxpayers are, are being required to invest in the rising generation should not be funneled towards propping up this system. The money, if it's intended to serve kids and support their educational growth, should follow the kids. And so now in several states across the country, and an increasing number of states keep working on this, they're passing laws that are called education savings accounts. 
So what this is designed to do is let's say uh, you live in Arizona where they have the strongest program uh, now, this uh, universal uh, education savings account. Let's say, I don't remember the numbers, but I'll, I think it's around 10 grand. The state is spending 10 grand on average to educate you know, your kid in Arizona in a school. Well, you, depending on income, would be able to take out a certain portion of that. You can take out the full 10. If you're super wealthy, maybe you only get five, somewhere in between, right? So let's say you get 7,500 bucks. Okay. If you pull your kids out of public school and you could go use that as enrollment at a private school, you could use that. If you're going to homeschool, you could use that for a tutor and for curriculum and for field trips and all kinds of things, right? You can, if you're in a homeschool co-op, you could use it to pay for classes at the co-op or all kinds of stuff. It empowers the parents to say, well, rather than my kids sitting in a chair at the local school, you know, sitting in their seat there, there's all this wide variety of options out here. And now I have the financial support to do it that was being spent on the teachers unions and the all the administrative bloat at the local government school. I can unlock those funds. You know, and so this is decentralizing. It's moving the money out of the centralized system and scattering the money all over the place so that parents can go make individual choices that best suit their kids. Some will homeschool, some will private school. Many parents will just leave their kids in the government schools, and that's their decision. But these laws allow us to decentralize power and money, get it out of the centralized system. The more people we can empower to make decisions and come up with creative solutions, the better. Right, the laboratories of democracy. Let's not have one like centralized system. Let's have tons of little experiments and innovations and all kinds of stuff happening. And so I'm optimistic that as more states keep passing laws like that, we're going to have more creative experimentation that can create systems that help kids, you know, explore their individuality. You can do it with a classroom of 30. You yeah. just have to move away from a model of formal instruction, this authoritarian, like, listen to me and I will teach you all the things. Instead, you just have creative, unstructured time where kids can go explore, watch YouTube videos, do Khan Academy, go to the library and read books about whatever you know matters to them. And the adults shift from a, a teacher model to a guide model. It's like, I'm here to help you when you have questions, or if you're looking for various resources, I can help you. Let's support you in your own goals. I have my kids now in an acting academy. These are all across the country. You can Google Acton Academy. They're private schools okay. that are basically training grounds for entrepreneurs. They're helping kids with uh, with exactly what I just described. The, there's no teachers. They're called guides. Uh, there's not even students. They call them heroes because everyone is on the hero's journey. If you're familiar, your listeners are familiar with the hero's journey concept. You know, it's this formulaic approach, right? Where like everyone's called on an adventure to go, you know, pursue this outcome and we have failures along the way and we have teams coming to rally and support us. And we have a guide, you know, whether that's Gandalf or Morpheus or, you know, whoever it is, we have a guide. And so the teachers in an Acton Academy are the adults. They're actually guides. They're there just to say, you're on your own journey. Right. And, and, and so they have 12 week um, periods in the school that are called journeys. So parents and guides and the hero get together at the beginning of the 12-week journey, and they say, what's the destination? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to work on? What skills are you trying to acquire? What are you curious about? And let's support you during this 12-week process by focusing on things that will develop you towards those goals. It is totally different than what you get in government schools. 
Um, it is not at all this top-down approach of, I am going to teach you everything you need to know, so take notes as I write on the chalkboard. Instead, it sets kids free to go learn in a variety of different places, find information from the internet or wherever, and the guides are just there to support them in that journey. So there's different models like that out there, uh, but I, I think uh, the more that we can decentralize the money and empower families to pursue these alternatives, we're going to have people solving this exact problem and building ways that actually support kids with uh, uh, education uh, services that honor their individuality. And I'm very excited for that future. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Connor, but I, I, I guess I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. But do you think that, you know, using these guides and using, and I'm not calling out people or anything, but I think a lot of the population is very gullible when, you know, basically they read, they read Twitter, they read, you know, Facebook posts, and all of a sudden they believe whatever's being said rather than going doing their own homework and deciding, making up their own opinion about what's going on. So when they reinforce their ideas and morals and values or whatever you want to say towards their their children and say, hey, I'm going to homeschool my child and I'm going to teach them this just because I've read it off, you know, Twitter, Facebook or whatever right there is like, is that should be a standard should be set up to say that, well, you know, you need to have some type of curriculum based on certain books, certain actual websites that we know that have been, what is it? Uh, actually publicly proofread, not proofread. What's the word about like looking, peer, peer reviewed. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Just because, you know, I mean, if somebody reads on Facebook that, Hey, there's a teacup that orbits the moon and I'm going to go ahead and share that with my, uh, children and let them know that's how it is. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's my, that's a, yeah. I mean, no, that's a good, good, good question. Um, so, so I think of the word indoctrination. We we see this as a negative term, and rightly so, because in most contexts, indoctrination is like forcing information into a, a blank slate mind that doesn't know any better, and you're just teaching them this unquestioning supposed truth that often is false, right? So that's kind of the evil version of indoctrination. But the word itself simply means to teach doctrine. If you're indoctrinating a child, you're just teaching the doctrine. You're, you're teaching children ostensibly true principles, true doctrine. So ultimately, the question is, who is the arbiter of truth? Because let's let's run with your devil's advocate question for a minute. Let's say society is concerned about, oh, if these people homes, and there are many people who advocate this. There was a Harvard professor a year ago, two years ago, that proposed banning homeschooling and requiring parents to get a permit to homeschool their own kids out of this exact concern. She was worried that these backwater, hillbilly, conspiracy-believing, you know, uh, Americans were, were going to indoctrinate their kids into this warped view. And as a result, we need to require permits, and you have to get a license, and you have to – only with our permission can you educate your own – so there are definitely people out there who, who believe this. What you just advanced as a devil's advocate question is not a crazy one because there are people who, who advocate this. The, the issue is who is the arbiter of truth, right? Because we just got through COVID. When I can't tell you how many supposedly peer-reviewed experts that were all agreeing with one another that were you know, in this uh, – um, this kind of self-referencing cycle of of saying yes to that and this is right and everything else when it's all like there's a bunch of garbage in there now right the, you know the wuhan lab leak like wasn't a thing at all and you were a fringe crazy person if you believe that exactly. oh and now by the way that's the you know accepted truth of you exactly. know what happened and the 
the Hunter Biden laptop. No, you're a crazy person. You're, you believe in conspiracies and right wing garbage, you know, and all of a sudden now, like mainstream media two years later is coming around to it, admitting that that's true. Right. So, like, who is the arbiter of truth? We 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 can't like some group of people, 98 percent of scientists agree that climate change is caused by humans. I'm like, OK, that's nice that you all agree. But scientists all used to, you know, doctors used to all believe that smoking was good for you. Like sure. experts are are often wrong. Like, so at the end of the day, I believe it is the natural, I believe God given, but, but the natural right of parents to teach their children. And some parents will teach their children stupid things. Yep. And some parents will pass on, you know, misinformation to their kids. But what's the solution? What, what, what solves for that to have this societal like regimentation of what kids have to learn? That is rife with, you know, controversy and abuse and corruption, as we've seen throughout collectivist dictatorial societies in the past, where they took over this collective approach to education, they threw parental rights out the window, and they began indoctrinating kids in the evil sense of the world, uh, word, right, to believe in their, you know, Marxist uh, socialist worldviews and, and uh, glorifying government and all the rest. So. I don't think there's any solution. I don't think we can ever ensure that kids won't learn wrong things. We can minimize the problems by, again, decentralizing it. If we centralize it into these communist, Marxist, whatever societies and have these big government programs of teaching children, then whoever's in charge of that one system can suddenly influence countless children. But if we decentralize it to families or to local communities, then any one particular problem is localized. It's minor. It's not going to have a big ripple effect. And those kids, even if they're raised in a home that teaches them that the, whatever you said, the teacup, yeah. you know, revolves around the sun or whatever, right? <laughs> even if that happens, that will lar largely be corrected as that child gets broader social exposure and everything else. And then it's easier to solve one or two or 10 or 100 kids going through that process than it is to correct a society that where millions of kids have been subjected to propaganda and indoctrination through a centralized education models. So I would rather have the decentralized model and deal with the little, you know, whack-a-mole problems that kind of pop up here and there, uh, rather than creating these systems to try and address that, that themselves become abused, corrupt, and become far worse than the problem they were designed to create, uh, designed to solve. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, also that in a country where we're very polar, polarized, polarized right now, I can't talk today. That, oh. yeah, um, that if you almost have to always present both sides of the story rather than where, depending on like when I was going to school, you would only hear one side of the story, correct? And like when you're saying decentralized, like giving them both and let the students make up their own minds and then let them go write an essay or whatever based on whatever issue they're having. And, and I guess for, and I guess where I'm getting that because, you know, I was almost sometimes I felt like in school when I was going through my pub, I was a public school that there were some ideas that I came up with or wrote a paper with. I was like, not right, because it didn't conform with the the teachers, I guess, her thinking, I guess is a good way to put it. But there's one paper in particular that I remember in my senior year, there was a book called or not a book or an essay called uh a Modest Proposal by Jonathan Swift. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it was basically, he was talking about, for those who don't know, talking about, I think if 
was it England? I can't remember, but they were basically in hard off and that he taught, he proposed that eating babies would be uh help the economy. And he went all <laughs> yeah, and we had to write a cold critique paper on it. And he was just, you know, he was talking about ba- basically raising them like how we do farm animals and stuff and shipping off and eating that. So if you came up with a paper like that, it was almost just like you shouldn't write about stuff like that or talk about stuff like that just because it's not the social norm or whatever. But it was like, well, this guy, Jonathan Swift, he wrote about it back and I forgot when he wrote about it. So it was almost one of those things that I was critiqued for actually saying that. And I'm, I may have lost my point or my train of thought on this, but I was just saying that to show him like, okay, well, let's, let's, see what, let's see what they have to say about this. And not to say that. And I don't think the whole paper was very serious about, hey, we're eating babies just to – fix the country's problems but it was just an idea like i think it was just a form of writing that he did and somebody that might need to fact check me on that but i guess that's my next question is that always like you know in certain schools now like they only teach one side of the history like american history right never both sides you don't get both sides of the story does that kind of make sense this is a big this is a big problem uh we all know this quote that i'm about to share those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it Exactly. It's a very popular, very, very popular quote, right? The problem with that quote is that we all suck at doing anything about it. We don't teach kids to learn from history. We just don't. We teach kids about history. Literally, it's like we're walking them through the Museum of American History and we're like, oh, look, they used to use bayonets like that. And look at the cannonballs they used to fire. Here's the uniforms they wore. Okay, kids, time to go to the cafeteria, time to move on with our day, right? And it's this very passing review of history. You read uh, social studies books talking about like the Constitution, the Revolutionary War, all this kind of stuff. We did this a couple – in fact, we came out with a Tuttle Twins history book designed to solve for this problem because we started with some research. We bought a whole bunch of different social studies books to see how they were talking about you know, the revolution and everything. And and all of these books were chock full of tidbits, factoids. These people said these things. This guy wrote a letter to this guy on this date, and this battle happened, and they traveled here, and these people fought, and – it's like a, a, a travelogue of, of just like all these things happen in chronological order. Yeah. But these books didn't really have, they had the what, they didn't really have the why mm-hmm. they had the content. They didn't have the context. And so, so what we wanted to solve for with the Teletwins is like, if, if we want going back to that quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. That means we, when we talk about history, we have to help kids learn from it, not just what happened, but like, what are the lessons that we can draw from it? What are the ideas that were at play here? So that when we see those same ideas in our day, right, we can like make a connection. Let me give you a, a specific example. Okay. So, so uh, founding fathers, they're fighting the British. The Redcoats would write themselves what were called writs of assistance. It's basically permission slips. They would say, like, I authorize myself to go search your home or this whole neighborhood. I've heard about this. And the founding fathers hated this because it was invasive. You know, they didn't like that the Redcoats could just authorize themselves to do it. So later on, when they were doing the Constitution, what became the Fourth Amendment was what this proposal. And it says, you know, you need to have a judge, uh, an impartial judge review it rather than the government just doing it themselves. You need to have probable cause, meaning you have to have like a real good reason or suspicion that there's a crime happening here. You can't just do it willy-nilly. And you have to have particularized suspicion. What that means is 
uh, you have to search a particular place or a particular person. You can't just say, I want to search a whole neighborhood or I want to search everyone named Bob, right? It has to be particularized. So the founding fathers wrote that fourth amendment because of their experience with the, the British redcoats and this open-ended search abuse. Okay. So now imagine when we're teaching kids about that story from history, I hold up my phone and I say, let me tell you about the NSA and how the NSA is spying on all of us. Sure. They're collecting all of our texts and tweets and phone calls and voicemails and emails and everything else. And suddenly the same concerns that the founding fathers had back then, we can have today about our own government that is conducting mass surveillance on American citizens without a judge, without probable cause, without particularized suspicion. And so what did the founding fathers do about that? Maybe we can learn a thing or two from history and apply those lessons today to try and fix a similar problem that we're dealing with. History suddenly comes alive when you provide these modern connections. It's not just that these random things happened 250 years ago. It's that similar, somewhat similar things are happening today. And if we learn from the past about what they did and why they did it and how they did it, maybe we can be guided in our own actions today. That's the whole point of history. So we produced a 240-page American history book. It's at tuttletwins.com slash history. And it's designed to solve for exactly this. It's saying, here's history, yes, but here's what we can learn from it to apply today. This is why we learn history. And so it's just a big book full of stories for kids. But at the end, we're always saying, like, here's a modern example, or here's a here's a connection to our day. And here's, here's what we can learn from this that makes sense about our world today. Um, and so we just, we, we produce that exactly because we saw that there was this massive problem that needed to be dealt with. Do you start gearing those books towards children just because their minds are constantly developing and their minds are basically like a sponge? So if they start to inherit these ideas early on, kind of what we've been saying this whole conversation, they'll start to form their own opinions and start to ask the questions about, you know, to their grandparents or fathers or guardians, whatever about, hey, why, you know, I read this about X, Y, and Z. So why does it, why is this going on based on what I read or whatever. So that, is that the kind question? Of yeah, I would say yes, in part. These are kids' books ultimately, but the Tuttle Twins really are family learning resources. And what I mean by that is that when we simplify things at this low level for kids, the adults learn too. <laughs> if I go to if if I right if I go to mom or dad on the street or at the grocery store, I stop a random person and I say, hey. Here's this powerful book written by a Nobel Prize winning free market economist decades ago named F.A. Hayek, smart guy. And he wrote this book called The Road to Serfdom about the dangers of collectivism, the importance of free markets and individual choice. He wrote it decades ago. Here, here it is. Will you read it? Like, what do you think the chances are that the average adult would read a, a, a book like that? I would say sub 1%. Agree. You know, that would actually like read it. Instead, if I say to that same mom or dad, Hey, do you think it'd be important for your kids to learn about, you know, markets and money and the way things work? Oh yeah. You know, I want, I want to make sure my kids are well-rounded. Right. And, and if I say, here's a kid's book to read with your kids, those parents, their defenses come down. They're not doing this to study for themselves. They're doing it to invest in their kids. 
And so they sit down together and they read this book. And at the end of our books, we have discussion questions where it's like, here, you can go, you know, talk to your kids about these ideas once you read the story. And those parents themselves all the time are emailing us being like, wow, I never learned this stuff in school at all. And they're not getting the books to learn for themselves. They're getting it for their kids to learn. But they're realizing along the way that they're learning a lot as well. And they're having amazing conversations with their family. Um, And so that's ultimately what it's about for us is creating family conversations, sparking those conversations, realizing that the parents oftentimes never learned these ideas when they were young because the schools didn't teach them these ideas. And so by simplifying it at a level for kids, we we can get the parents to, to invest in their kids but then get the parents learning as well. And suddenly the whole family is talking about it. That's what we're after. No, I like that. Just speaking, I know we're getting a little short on time here, but my last thought that is just that, you know, growing up, there were certain conversations and discussions, discussions that I knew that I was unable to have at the dinner table just because of knowing that where certain people stood on certain subjects. Right. But if you have these books and have where, you can start these conversations and even get the conversation going. And this is, well, you know, like we said earlier, the teacup or burying the moon, like, Hey, well, if that's what you believe, well, let's talk about it a little bit, man. Let's see. Why do you think that way? And, and that if you make it in great, easy to read material where everybody can kind of understand it, at least start talking about it and have these conversations where they know everything's open. You're not going to be constantly judged based on your remarks or your statements and that you won't feel mean just because you said that hey i do believe that that teacup orbits the moon but yeah so i agree 100 with you connor that's cool that you made those books geared towards that and you kind of you know you seems like you're two steps ahead of the game right now so i think it's pretty bad <laughs> trying try to be because i think the enemy is like eight steps ahead of the game so uh <laughs> you know try, trying to accelerate this and look at the long-term view and and i'll, I'll end with this um i think that we will lose every battle we don't know we're even fighting like if you don't realize that you're on a battlefield you've already lost and so i think today we are in an ideological war i think that there are people who see our children as you know like like capture the flag i don't know what right they want to like capture the minds of the young i think our kids minds are ground zero for this conflict i think that there are people who have nefarious intentions and and designs they have throughout history they exist today and I think they're utilizing, you know, culture and media and current events and everything else to shape things towards the ends that they have. And I think that those people and I are on completely opposite sides of the ideological spectrum. So if I don't want my kids to be a casualty, or frankly, even myself, like I have to, number one, realize that this is even a battle, that this is, you know, a conflict. And that if it is, I need to don a shield right i need to put on armor i need to defend myself and then hopefully have a sword in hand where i can go fight back but that requires me to know who the enemy is who's attacking me if these just you know grenades are just suddenly going off and i can't see the enemy i don't know who to go fight but if i can see who's lobbing them from a distance and chucking them at me i can try and go after so i don't love using war analogies and trying to like you know manipulate a, a you know conversation to use this very um you know i don't know tense language of of conflict but ultimately i think that's what we're in the middle of and i think we have a lot of casualties i think a lot of kids are losing before they even had a chance i think a lot of parents are just sending their kids off into the battlefield of school government schools and life without 
helping them understand who the enemy is without giving them, you know, a shield and, and body armor. Um, I want to help those kids, you know, preserve their lives. I want to get them to see who the enemy is and fight back. Um, so for families, ultimately, that's what the Tuttle Twins is about, is trying to teach these principles, trying to show who's un- trying to attack these principles and violate them today and empower these families to have those conversations that matter about our world, not fluffy stuff, not sports, not like everything has its place, but like, we also got to have conversations about these real world issues in an age appropriate way. That's intimidating to a lot of parents who feel like they don't understand these ideas themselves. So that's what the Tuttle Twins books solved for is to empower those parents to have these just amazing conversations and kickstart those discussions in the family about ideas that matter. Well, Connor, thanks for being here. Thanks for sitting around talking with me on a Monday night. Um, if you want to plug your podcast, your books, or just anything in general, what do you want to plug? Feel free to do that right now. So people, you want people to find you and all that good stuff. Yeah. Thank you. So the books are all at tuttletwins.com. They're on Amazon too, but they're cheaper and you get bonuses. If you go to tuttletwins.com um, and we got the history book, we have books for teenagers as well. We have books for toddlers, even like the ABCs of Liberty. So we got books for all ages. We've got curriculum, We've got a cartoon as well. So if you go to YouTube and search Tuttle Twins, you'll find our cartoon. Uh, we just wrapped season one. So that's been a really big, fun deal. Um, and then uh, our podcast, it's called The Way the World Works. Uh, or if you just search Tuttle Twins in your favorite podcast app, you'll find it. Our episodes are 15 minutes each. They're really designed for like mom and the kids in the car, going to run errands, only got a little chunk of time. We're just planting lots of little seeds. Here's a little tidbit here, 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 just trying to get those conversations going, spark curiosity. Um, and so you can search Tuttle Twins in your favorite podcast app. We're all over social media. We share spicy memes on Instagram. So come check us out. Well, cool. Thanks again, Connor. Uh, I enjoyed, enjoyed this conversation. It was great. So. As did I. Thank you, Chris. All right. Bye, everybody. We're out of here. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park